welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene and I'll be telling stories of true crime, about murder, other tragedies and sometimes some events of interest, involving people who had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales and its surrounding districts. As convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche or moved on to seek their fortune. The stories are based in the 19th and early 20th century. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open sourced information, family research, state archive records and trove newspapers. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Sound effects by Soundbible. Why do people tell stories on Christmas? Christmas ghost stories are a tradition going back much farther than A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. The following is a short excerpt from an article by Kat Eschner of the Smithsonian Magazine, December 23, 2016. Ebenezer Scrooge wasn't the first fictional character to see ghosts around Christmas time. The tradition of holiday ghost stories goes much, much farther back. Farther, perhaps, than Christmas itself. When the night grows long and the year is growing to a close, it's only natural that people feel an instinct to gather together. At the edge of the year, it also makes sense to think about people and places that are no longer with us. Thus, the Christmas ghost story. Its origins have little to do with the kind of commercial Christmas we've celebrated since the Victorian age. They're about the darker, older, more fundamental things. Winter, death, rebirth, and the rapt connection between a teller and his or her audience. But they're packaged in the cosy trappings of the holiday. Between all that and the rum punch, eggnog, well, a few tall tales are bound to come out. The decline of the holiday came courtesy of Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell, the lord and protector of England in the 17th century and a Puritan, was on a mission to cleanse the nation of its most decadent excesses, writes Clemency Burton Hill for The Guardian. On the top of the list was Christmas and all its festive trappings, 
Prior to this, he writes, Christmas was celebrated in much the way that a modern Christmas is. Lots of food and drink, decorations and singing. Cromwell also famously banned Christmas carols. The ghost story tradition has even made it some way into modern times. Preserved in places like the lyrics to the Christmas classic, it's the most wonderful time of the year, which talks about scary ghost stories. Though to modernise, Halloween might be a more appropriate holiday for ghosts, Christmas makes sense. As Dickens wrote, the ghosts of Christmas are really the past, present and future, swirling around us in the dead of the year. They're a reminder that we're all haunted, all the time, by good ghosts and bad, and that they all have something to tell us. A True Ghost Story The following narrative has been handed to the Newcastle Chronicle and Hunter River District News, Saturday 2nd of June 1866 for publication. The story is a colonial one, and the real names of the persons and places therein referred to are only suppressed fictitious ones being substituted, for reasons which are so obvious as not to require enumeration at our hands. The tale is taken from the second and third numbers of a magazine published by the St. Mary's Young Men's Society of West Maitland. The writer is personally known to ourselves, and quote, we have his authority for stating that the story is literally a true one, end of quote. The village of Foxearth is distant from the town of Ipswich about 30 miles. It consists of a public house, kept by a rough, blustering, but kind-hearted Scotchman, a store, and some three or four poultry huts, or as they are styled in this part of the colony, humpies. The site of this so-called township is on an extensive, undulating plain bounded in the distance by the gum-clad hills so common in the interior. There is nothing whatever in the village worthy of even a passing notice, with the solitary exception of the public house, which enjoys the unenviable reputation of being haunted. Haunted? I fancy I hear some of the readers of this magazine exclaim. What nonsense! How grossly absurd! as if there was the slightest truth in the exploded and old women's notion of haunted houses. Yes, gentle reader, or courteous reader, as it is the fashion now to term all sorts of readers, I repeat, this roadside inn at Foxhurst has the reputation being, and I verily believe is, haunted. You may laugh as much and as long as you choose at my weakness, but notwithstanding, if it should ever fall to your lot to experience what I did in that dreadful house, not many months since, I will answer for it. Your opinion on this question of supernatural appearances will quickly undergo a decided change. A brief sketch of what I personally experienced on the occasion of my first and only visit to Voxworth may not, it has occurred to me, be uninteresting to the readers of our magazine. To make intelligible my subsequent remarks, 
It is necessary that I should say something of prior occurrences. I arrived at the haunted house a little before sundown on Sunday evening, stopping in the same house for the night. Besides myself, there were two or three other gentlemen and one lady. We all reached our temporary destination about the same hour. Shortly after our arrival, tea was placed upon the table. After partaking, of which the lady withdrew, leaving the gentlemen to discuss politics or anything else they chose, various subjects were introduced, until at length the round of ordinary topics having been exhausted, there was a sudden pause or break in the conversation. For some minutes silence reigned supreme. Not a word was spoken by anyone in the room. How I often wished since that pause had never occurred. Several minutes elapsed when at last a Mr. Smith ventured some commonplace remark respecting the weather. A violent gust of wind, which just at that moment came rushing down the chimney and roared loudly round the house outside, caused all the company to agree most heartily with the observation made by Mr. Smith to the effect that it was an exceedingly unpleasant night out of doors. With the exception of the writer, however, all the other persons in the room appeared to be too deeply absorbed in the contemplation, some other matter to prolong the conversation on so ordinary a topic. Another long pause ensued. The glasses were refilled and the customary good healths, my respects, etc., were exchanged and the company again settled down into what threatened to be a silence of a long duration. It was broken, however, very unexpectedly, by Mr. Steadman of Rose Cottage, who somewhat abruptly addressed the writer as follows. You are a stranger in these parts, I believe, sir. I replied that I was, never having been to Foxearth before that evening. You have heard, I suppose, continued Mr. Steadman, something out of the way as regards some of the houses on this line. No, I made answer, I have not. I have heard indeed that the accommodation on ahead towards Warnerfield is very passable, but nothing more. Nonsense, replied Mr. Steadman quickly. He said, Is it possible you have not heard that this house we are now in is haunted? Another fearful gust of wind, together with the revelation I had just heard made, caused me to fairly start from my seat. Haunted? I exclaimed, resuming my seat and feigning to laugh. Well, no, I never heard that, and if I had, it wouldn't discomfort me much, for I don't believe in ghosts or haunted houses either. A short conversation followed, all present professing to agree with me, that belief in the supernatural appearances of any description whatever is chimerical and absurd. How long this interesting table talk might have continued, or how many ghost tales each might have narrated, I can't say, when we were suddenly interrupted by a burly landlord on whose presence, of course, nothing further was said on the subject. It was now about half-past ten o'clock, and observing that Mr. Smith and Mr. Steadman had left the room, I called for my candle and requested the landlord to show me my bedroom. And now, lest my readers should say, 
Were you frightened before you went to bed at all? I wished to disabuse their minds on that point. That I started when I heard Mr. Stedman say, The house we are in is haunted. I at the time already admitted. But that after a lapse of a few minutes, I was in the least frightened or entertained any serious belief that the house was haunted. I most distinctly and positively deny. To speak the truth, after a few minutes, I thought no more of the matter and retired to rest, not at all apprehensive of hearing any unearthly noises or of seeing any supernatural sights. But to resume, when I got into my bedroom, I did as I usually do, looked to the fastening on the door and window, and I also looked underneath the bed. The room was a small one, with a sloping roof, the lower part of which came almost close down to the top of the bed. The bedstead took up nearly half of the room, affording anyone wishing to play tricks but a poor chance of concealing themselves in the chamber for such a purpose. It is almost needless for me to say there were no cupboards in the apartment. Having satisfied myself on these points, I at once undressed, looked at my watch, put out the candle, and jumped into bed. Up to this moment, I wish it to be distinctly understood. I was not in the least timid, not nearly as much as I have been on many other occasions when sleeping in a strange bedroom in a lonely place. When I last looked at my watch, it was twenty minutes past eleven o'clock. My head, once on the pillow, I was soon fast asleep. How long I slept, I do not know. In all probability, I never shall know. But this I do know, that after having been asleep for some indefinite time, I awoke hearing a most horrible noise and feeling a most unaccountable and extraordinary sensation in my chest. I awoke, as I have stated, in a terrible fright. The first thing I became conscious of was a frightful but utterly indescribable pressure upon my chest. So violent was the pressure, so real and tangible, that for some minutes after I awoke it was only with the greatest difficulty that I could draw my breath. A couple of half hundredweights placed on one's chest would not be more uncomfortable or unpleasant than the sensation which I experienced that night. But the dreadful sensation on the chest was not all the misery I endured. So soon as I could collect my senses and realise where I actually was, another source of horror was discovered. From a spot close to the foot of my bed, in extremely unpleasant proximity, there proceeded a soft unnatural and unearthly noise. What to compare it to, I know not. It was a sort of low, mournful wail. The impression left on my mind was that the voice, for such I am sure now, as I was sure then, came from a human being in deep anguish and pain. I listened long and attentively to the sound. It was fitful in its nature. The tone would be raised and sustained in one key for some seconds. Anon, it would suddenly drop and die out in the most pathetic of cadences. 
The state in which I lay all this time can be imagined, perhaps, but it can never be described. I felt as if I would give all I was ever possessed of to be removed from my position, to obtain a match, to hear the voice of some mortal inmate of the house, or to know that the blessed day was breaking. From head to foot I was in a reeking perspiration, notwithstanding that the night was rather cool, and I had nothing on me but a thin quilt and a sheet. Oh, how slow time passes when we are in pain, or we are kept in the fearful suspense. Once, and once only did I venture to lift my eyelids, but seeing no signs of daylight, I did not afterwards risk encountering some horrible sight by again opening them. I wish I could convey to my readers some adequate conception of the agony I endured for the next two or three hours at the least. Words, however, fail me to make it understood. Those who have been placed in situations of imminent danger, when they expected momentarily to meet their death, those who have been afflicted from childhood with the worst forms of nightmare, or those who, like myself, have slept in a haunted chamber, those persons, and those only, can have the slightest idea of the unutterable and awful agony I endured. Often since the fearful occurrence took place, I have thought that if I could have summoned up sufficient resolution to open my eyes, to have faced the danger, spirit, phantom, ghost, or whatever my tormentor was, the frightful spell might have been broken, and, aroused by some startling shriek or other demonstration of fright, some of the inmates of the house might have come to my assistance. But no such good fortune was mine. In vain did I turn and return in bed, with a view to obtain relief in sleep. Nature's sweet restorer was not to be coaxed and there was no help for it but to remain where I was, with sheets and nightdress and pillow, and indeed all the bed clothing as if it had been soaked in a vessel full of water. Once only for the space of a few minutes did I even doze, and then it was, just as I was in half somnolent, half wakeful state, that the accumulated horrors of that never-to-be-forgotten night reached their most horrible consummation. The spirit, ghost, apparition, or whatever it was, at this juncture, seized right hold of me and half dragged me out of the bed. Yes, there can be no mistake about it. Ridiculous as it may appear to some, I was pulled out of bed by a something, which, after the examination I had made of the room, I can only conclude was a ghost. Besides, I distinctly felt, and it makes my flesh creep when I think of it, the long, thin, bony fingers of a woman, as the something seized hold of me to drag me out of bed. Somehow, I managed to retain possession of my senses. I do not know, but I did, and that made it so much the worst. But the pinnacle was attained, the worst was over. For the remainder of the nights, I felt relieved of the pressure on my breast, and my ears were no longer assailed by that most melancholy and doleful of sounds. 
Finding that I would not open my eyes to behold her, it, the murdered woman's ghost, which haunts that fearful chamber, resorted to force to convince me that a foul deed had been committed, and that the fiend in human form who murdered her is still living on the earth, unpunished and unhanged. Such is the only rational construction which, after much consideration, I can put upon that unearthly and supernatural assault. I need not stay to tell how pleased I was to see the morning break and hear human voices again, nor how I had got laughed at for my pains when I related what had transpired during the night. In justice to myself, however, I ought to mention that, undaunted by the first night's experience, I slept in the haunted room a second night, and regarding that night, it must suffice to say that it was in every respect a repetition what I have narrated above. The sequel to my story is soon told. Some fifteen or sixteen years ago, a woman was basely murdered in this house at Fox Earth. The ruffian who perpetrated the horrid deed lives at the present time. The circumstances under which the poor woman's life was taken were unusually cruel and unnatural. The house at the time when the murder took place was occupied by a very low, quarrelsome family. The landlord was a great drunkard, and his wife, it is said, was also addicted in a lesser degree to the same baneful vice. The night on which the murder occurred was a bitter cold one in the month of August. The family, with the exception of the aforesaid landlord and his wife and a half-witted groom, were all in Ipswich. Late in the evening, a terrible quarrel between the landlord and his wife took place. Words rather high and blows fell thick and fast, until at length the inferior strength of the woman compelled her to succumb, and she took refuge in her room, fastening the door inside. Her husband continued drinking, and after a while became so maddened and infuriated that he rushed to the room in which his wife had taken shelter dragged her brutally, so brutally, that I dare not stain this paper by mentioning the manner, from her hiding place, kicked her through the house, and finally cast her ruthlessly out into the road. On that bitter cold winter's night, the unfortunate woman, with nothing in the world to protect her from the cold of that night but her nightdress, and fearing to return to the house, took shelter in a haystack near at hand. The night passed over, and what the kicking and belabouring might possibly not have affected, the piercing night air following, so close on the thrashing, most effectually accomplished. Early the next morning she was brought up to the inn and put to bed in the room where I unfortunately slept. She lingered for a few hours, when death put an end to her sufferings, which if all that I heard was true, must have been terrible indeed. In consequence of representations made by the murderer himself to the authorities, no inquiry into this affair was ever made, and it was generally believed for some years that the woman died a natural death. Such, however, I can assure my readers, was not the case, and ever since, at the dead hour of night, 
the ghost of the murdered woman resumes her presence to those who sleep in her bed. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. Hope you return to hear about more stories about the people and places of Morpeth and its surrounding districts. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.